On this episode of the BYO Nano Brew Podcast, we sit down with Alex McDonald of Earth Eagle Brewings in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, to talk about how his homebrew shop evolved into a full brewery and the styles that still capture his attention and that of his regular customers. Then, attorney Matthew McLaughlin joins us to talk about classic legal mistakes a craft brewery can avoid. And we're talking about brewing with herbs and spices with a brewer who knows a thing or two about it, Jeff Tyler of Colorado's Spice Trade Brewing. This is John Hall, and welcome to the BYO Nano Brew Podcast. This monthly podcast will feature insights, commentary, and interviews with professionals who are here to help you make better beer and to understand how to successfully run a business. And we're sponsored by Blickman Engineering Pro Brewing Pump Cart. Keep your brew day hopping with the Blickman Engineering Pro Brewing Pump Cart. Looking for an affordable, reliable, and easy-to-use solution for transferring your beer or cleaning your tanks? The Pro Brewing Pump Cart is designed with a front wheel that allows you to hop over hoses easily by simply tipping it forward. Perfect for brewery environments to transfer your beer and CIP your tanks. Starting at $17.99, order yours today. Visit BlickmanPro.com for more information. Again, that's BlickmanPro.com. And save the dates on your calendar for this year's NanoCon, taking place in San Diego from November 6th to 7th. Full program details on the two days of brewing and business seminars targeted for nanobreweries already up and running or in planning will be released at nanocon.beer in March. A few weeks back, I had the chance to visit Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and to talk with Alex McDonald, the owner and brewer of Earth Eagle Brewings. He's been running a homebrew shop and professional brewery and taproom for several years now and has seen all the benefits and occasional drawbacks on brewing small. While he's certainly interested in getting the most out of his system and trying out new styles, he finds himself really drawn to the classics and customers have followed. Here's what we talked about. How did the brewery come to be? Uh, It came to be out of a homebrew project. Um, My brother-in-law and I were brewing beer together. and we were just having a lot of fun with it. And uh, there wasn't a homebrew store locally in the area. We were driving an hour or more to get supplies or ordering online. And I stumbled on this building and was like, hey, I think we should open a homebrew store. And a building right, right here, so we're in downtown yeah, Portsmouth. downtown Portsmouth. Yeah. Um, and there was enough of a community to support that. Um, I mean, You weren't I did, the only one driving miles and miles away. At least I was thinking that. So, I mean, I did the demographics on it and, you know, you know, our surrounding area, we're, you know, 50 minutes north of Boston, you know, 45 minutes south of Portland, Maine. So yeah. it was really kind of a great central location. So what was the appeal, though, of opening up a homebrew shop? Because, you know, a lot of folks would just say, OK, well, I'm a homebrewer. I'm just going to go pro. I'm just going to open up a brewery instead. I, I, I feel like I don't hear a lot of stories of folks these days going and opening up a new homebrew shop. Yeah, I mean, I guess. um I was fascinated by the fact that you could brew almost any style of beer and you couldn't find a lot of those beers on the shelf at the time you know we're talking nine years ago when we opened up the store and uh you know so we couldn't find all the beers we wanted you couldn't get you know at the time Pliny the Elder was like the the best beer on the planet that you couldn't get still is a great beer and we couldn't get it here in New Hampshire so you know we started really trying to make beers that were like that and and I wanted to keep that spirit alive of home brewing because we were not only brewing IPAs and Belgians and German styles, but we were also experimenting with herbal beers, uh, the Groot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a lot of fun to do that. And 
I thought it would be a great way to start building a community and then eventually put a small brewery in to, you know, kind of enhance the, you know, the experience. On your website, you make a big point of pointing out community. Um, What is the homebrew community like in your mind these days? Because we've gotten so big and we started to focus so much on the actual professional breweries that sometimes, you know, the larger homebrew world, and it still continues to grow, mm-hmm. um, but is almost overshadowed, even though it helped create this industry yeah, that cropped sure. up around I mean, it. I think the, the homebrew community has definitely um, died off quite, quite a lot since all the breweries have started opening up. So how do you foster that? Um, I mean, How do you foster the community uh, to, to prevent the, the dying off? Not foster yeah, that, I mean, the continued we, death we hope of. It yeah, it doesn't you know, die off completely, <laughs> but you know, thanks, Jeff Bezos. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, you know, Alexa, online make shopping me a has beer. definitely yeah. made it a lot easier and more convenient, and it's very difficult to um, to compete against some of that. But I think the fact that we have a brick and mortar store and people that are homebrewing that have questions want to be able to come in and speak to someone and. And I think that's how, how that's how it continues to stay a community is people come in and ask questions and we're there to answer them. How have the questions evolved over the years? Um, it's definitely gone a lot of, like straight away from extract brewing for sure. Like intro home brewing isn't quite as prevalent as it was. Um, it's definitely shifted towards all green. We get lots of uh, questions about different yeast strains, um, how to make certain styles of beer, that kind of stuff. But uh, it- when you first started, when you first opened, were there certain styles that had really captured the attention versus now? Um, and I, I also I think it's sort always of, been IPA. Strong. It's always been IPA. Yeah, for sure. The the Kvike yeast um, craze has kind of gone, you know, through the roof. We sell a lot of different strains of that from Omega, um, you know, because it's just a really fascinating yeast strain for people. I think that yeast in in general is really what's keeping people interested in still homebrewing and trying different things. There is a lot of, I think for a lot of homebrewers, you know, you'd start with the basics. You know, if you got your Mr. Beer kit early on, you'd do the Amber Ale and then, you know, you'd get into some of the hoppier beers and then you'd start to experiment with, you know, crazier yeasts or adjuncts or, or, or things like that. Do you still see that with the new homebrew customers that walk through that they're starting where everybody else started? Or are there people who are walking in and right off the bat, like they want to be doing you know, crazy Norwegian yeah. farmhouse. I think, I think it's a, a mix of both, really. Yeah. Um, a lot of people are interested in trying to recreate something like that, but they're also, tr- you know, curious about how it's even done. So, yeah. So you had the homebrew store for a couple of years, and then you decided, well, yeah, let's... Time let's, to open a brewery. Let's uh, go pro. New Hampshire made the, the state laws, uh, made it easier for small brewers to get in the game okay. uh, with a nano brewery license. You know, went from a $1,200 a year beverage manufacturing license, which like Smutty Nose or Red Hook or mm-hmm. whoever was doing. And, and it offered, opened up this uh, small taproom concept uh, at a cheaper rate. And you were able to sell right in-house four ounce samples. And we were like, well, you know, that's really kind of, that'd be a great little addition to the homebrew store, but also kind of get our foot in the door and see where it takes us. Yeah. Um, I always kind of had an idea of being a brew pub. Um, cause again, it kind of brings people together. You know, it's more of a public house. It's mm-hmm. more of a community based, um, atmosphere. And I think that's important to keep that alive. You know, I mean, you look around our space, you don't see TVs, you know, because we kind of want people to sit and have conversation with their, 
maybe the table next to them or somebody at the bar. So, so when you first opened up, there was a one barrel system. Yep. What were you making on that? Um, we were doing a little bit of everything. We had, I think, six small one barrel fermenters, and we were doing, you know, we had, you know, IPA, obviously, um, but our IPA was a West Coast style. Um, and I had a brown ale and a red ale, and we had some Belgian saisons, and we had some of those things. And we were always kind of, again, because we were home brewers, we wanted to keep that concept alive. Yeah. So we didn't want to just be known for, you know, this is all we make. This is our IPA. This is our brown. We wanted to have a full spectrum of different styles and, and to add things to beers that maybe didn't make sense to people. Like we, instead of making your traditional pumpkin ale every fall, I made a curry pumpkin porter instead. Um, so it was like, you know, the, still keeping the idea of homebrewing it alive. And a one-barrel system was great for that. Like, yeah. it was, you know, it's not a lot of beer in the grand scheme of things. So you could have fun with that and still see how things in it, see how things evolve. And it really did kind of help build what beers became the, the, the flagships of our brand, really. So you didn't come in with a we want to have a, like a plenty of our own or we're going to do something like that. Like you, you were, yeah, I mean, it I sounds guess, like you were willing to sort of let the, the customer, the market decide what would yeah. be your. Yeah. And I think that was, you know, part of it. I mean, obviously, you know, Pliny to me was one of the best IPAs out there. Sure. And so when I started brewing and I started brewing even earlier in the early nineties, uh, home brewing, but didn't really get serious about it um, until a few, you know, much, many years later. But, you know, to be able to create a beer that was, in my mind, that kind of stood up to those types of beers, that was always the goal. You know. So what started to resonate with customers then? I mean, obviously, IP is still our yeah. number one seller. I mean, it will, you know, turn that out over and over and over. Um, but, you know, some of the Gruet, some of the herbal beers were definitely um, an interesting yeah, I guess it was just interesting to see how people responded to them because they were so different. And, you know, there was a lot of people that were like, well, I don't really like beer. And I don't really like hoppy beer. Well, here, try this. And, and it opened up people's minds to a whole new thing. Like beer can taste like this. And you're really kind of only limited by your imagination. Because so. you get a lot of folks who come through. I mean, downtown Portsmouth, you have a lot of tourists who come through in, the, I guess, the nicer months, uh, as it were. Sure. Um, and then, you know, there's also probably a lot of locals who are curious as well, but who, you know, maybe came up on a different certain style of beer. Um, how important was diversity, though? to Because to, you're going to have that one chance to make a good first impression. And I'm always sort of surprised when I walk into a brewery and it's like, you know, here's nine different New England IPAs, hazy, sure. uh, take your pick. And it's like is there any other variety? So like variety, I think variety has always been important and has always been really key to our brand. And people are always excited to walk in and go, Oh, what's a Roche beer or what's this, you know, and, and try something different and open people's minds to, a, you know, other concepts. Obviously we get people all summer long. They're like, Oh, I'll take a Bud Light. Like, well, you know, so we, you know, I make a, a, an American light lager for, for those people, you know, cause I think it's important, you know, and I like to drink those too in the summertime. So yeah, that was always the. I, I wrote about this in a in a in a book once, where I was at a brewery and they had all this crazy stuff on the wall. And I said, "Well, what happens if somebody walks in and asks for a Miller Lite or a Bud Light?" And they go, "Well, the closest thing we have is our blueberry Hefeweizen." And I just I stared at the bartender for a minute, being like, well, 
do, do people actually do that? I say, no, they usually walk out. It's yeah. like, well, <laughs> boy, there's a missed seven bucks right there. Yeah, for sure. Um, but you like making those beers, and you like drinking those beers. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm an old school, you know, I'm, I'm not that old, but I'm old enough that, you know, craft beer wasn't always there. So Yeah. So, I, but the importance of appealing to, it's not just craft talking to craft. Um, you know, when you have a small tap room like this, when you have the interactions with people, um, do you think you'd be doing yourself a disservice if you didn't have those beers? I think so. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to, you know, know your customers and, and have a variety for that reason. Cause there are people that don't really, they, they don't want IPAs. They want something different. You know, we, we are lucky enough to have great breweries up the road from us. Um, you know, Allagash people all the time come in. Hey, you got you got that Allagash beer? And we're like, okay, you you like Belgian wit, so you know, start making we have something wit. similar to yeah. that. you know, or you know, so it's kind of nice to to have variety. I don't always want to drink the same beer either. So, so after the one barrel, you upgraded to yeah. So we had a one barrel Blickman system back there, and Blickman at the time had these sleeves that like snapped onto the top of yeah. them, so it turned into a two barrel system. And we're like, sweet, that's a pretty cheap option and way to get more beer out of the system. So, so yeah, we bought a couple of five-barrel fermenters at that point, and we're double-batching into those. They were our first jacketed fermenters. Okay. Initially, we had everything in just, like, you know, cool-bot-controlled, um, temperature-controlled rooms. And, and it worked fine, you know. You know, smaller batches, you didn't worry about too much ramping of temperature and fermentation. Yeah. So. Um, but it was nice to finally start getting into the, you know, jacketed fermenters and feel like we were actually becoming professional brewers, you know? <laughs> so how long were you on the two barrel before you upgraded to where you are now? Uh, it was, I think we had that thing running for two years before we wow. got the five barrel system. Okay. And, and that was really like how, like starting small was very difficult because we were constantly chasing our tail. You know, we didn't anticipate it to take off as well as it did, um, you know, the one barrel system, it was fine. We were doing the samples, but then, you know, you couldn't serve a pint, which I thought was kind of weird. So yeah. I went up and helped change the laws in New Hampshire so that we could start selling pints of beer in a tap room. Right. Um, and that meant that we had to add food. So we started doing like paninis. We had a panini press out back and some small, you know, food options, charcuterie and cheese and yeah. things of that nature. And, and then people started staying longer and then we were selling pints. So one barrel's yeah it's a difference between like, oh, four man, ounces at a time and 16 yeah this. so we put the two in and, and we were able to keep that going long enough and we'd keep like you know six beers on tap at any given moment and that was the most we could really maintain uh and we quickly realized that we were just again getting our asses handed to us we couldn't keep up so um so we decided okay let's go to the full brew pub jump and we added some more food so we invested a little more into the kitchen which gave us the ability to have other people's beer on tap okay to have cider on tap to have a full liquor license to you know so we started doing that we started buying other local brewers and okay. putting their beer on tap as well as our own beer and uh and then had the full liquor and, and cider and other you know wine options sure so it helped to supplement that you know how how much we had to brew right um yeah, and then eventually that generated enough income that we in, went for the five barrel system, and and then slowly phased out, you know, buying everybody else's beer and just started putting all of our own on tap. That makes sense. What um, what did you guys wind up getting for your five barrel? Um, I kind of Mickey Moused it together. Okay. Um, I had a a pipe fitting and plumbing background, and 
instead of, I wish I had bought an actual like brew system. Okay. Um, but I got all the tanks from Stout Tanks out of Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an electric system. I had a local guy build the control panel and all that. So all said, went in, it would have been the same as like buying a, a nicer system for maybe premieres. <laughs> so. But what was the benefit? Like, what was the what was the appeal though? Then, because like, if it was going to be six and one half dozen of another, didn't why didn't really know that it was going to cost that much to put it together? Okay, initially. Um, so I think there was that, and I think there's kind of something cool about a, a system that's a little more manual and hands on versus um, just fully automated. Turn some yeah. Turn some things on. And you don't necessarily have here. to call the the home office if uh, something goes wrong and ask sure. about you know what that light is because. Well, you built it from the ground up. And that speaks to a homebrewing background a lot as well, fabricating your own equipment. Uh, Why electric? Um, One electric because it was a little more difficult to get approval for gas in the town. It really just came down to local city ordinances. On five barrels, do you find, you know, I'm sure you've been to other breweries that, you know, have gas and, Mm -hmm. you know, on that size. Have you found any major differences or things that you have to adjust or do differently? No, not really. I mean, the only major difference is it probably cost me more to brew a batch versus having a gas or a steam system for sure. Um, well, I mean, yeah, utility bills are important. I mean, yeah. you gotta you gotta be thinking about all yeah, that. Yeah, sure. Um, so, with the kitchen and adding that as well, um, how much do you communicate with the chefs there about like what you might have coming on, uh, you know, what they might be thinking about making? Because you know, a lot of the time, it's nice to have. Yeah, we, harmony uh, between the two. I mean, we we're definitely an American food kind of space. Um, you know, we're heavy on sliders and hot dogs and um, sandwiches and all that kind of stuff here. But is uh, a hot dog a sandwich? <laughs> yes, of course. Um, and we, I mean, if you if you look at our menu, we have like twenty hot dogs on the menu. So there's okay. a lot of different options there. Um, and yeah, and our the my lead kitchen guy, he uh, like kitchen manager he uh he kind of built all of those based around what we do as as beer here as well and then every so often we'll do specific like events and pair certain beers with that stuff so it seems like every part of your professional beer career has been both deliberate but also sort of born out of opportunity or born out of a situation you found yourself in from opening up the homebrew shop, uh, going through to finally putting in a five barrel system. What have you learned along the way as far as that approach, like as, as a small business owner, if somebody else was like, you know, like, Oh, I want to get into this as well. Um, your deliberate approach, I think at least from the outside, seems like it's working really well as opposed to, we're going to start right off with a 15 barrel or we're going to, you know, jump out of the plane before we learn how to, how to crawl kind of thing. um, Initially, we just kind of thought this was a low risk way of starting. Um, It didn't take a huge amount of capital to get started, um, which was, which, which was great at the time. And I think that it worked in, in the time that we became and we were born um, because I don't know about opening now in that fashion. Would be Do you think you'd be able to? I don't know. I don't know that you could. Um, I think it'd be harder for sure. In what ways? Um, I think just gaining enough steam to to grow fast enough to keep up with it. Um, you know, we've always, I've always found that we've 
been chasing our tail since we opened trying to get to the next step like oh man like we should have done this or we should we should we should have bought 10 barrel tanks instead of five barrel tanks you know um so i find that it was a very difficult way to grow and open a business because it's spent a lot we spent a lot of time here trying to build it and grow it so um and i think that that's something that a lot of people don't think about when they first start a brewery or open the concept of getting into a brewery you know i'll do this on the side i'll do it as you know a weekend warrior and i'll make beer on the weekends and it'll be great and you know that's not really the way it is it's a full-time job for sure well it's a full-time job if you want it to actually be successful i mean that's that's i'm always surprised when i meet folks who are like oh yeah you know i come in after you know my day job and you know i can't it's too expensive for me to leave my day job like that kind of thing it's like well yeah and it is it's a very it's a risk that you either are willing to take or or have the capital to back it up and you're not too concerned about it for us it was definitely a, a risk you know i mean i quit my job and started doing something that was a passion and luckily that was uh, something that took off at the right time so where do you want to see it go from here um i'd like to get more into mixed fermentation mixed cultures barrel aging um, i'm really fascinated by the like the old school belgian sours that were you know that take time to make and you have the luxury of time now. I, I hope so. <laughs> well, I mean, and, it seems like it, right? I mean, yeah, it's... I mean, we've been here seven years. I think that we have, you know, something that we can kind of bank, like not really bank on, but we have an idea of like what's what our ebbs and flows are as a business. Um, so, you know, it's and it's always going to be a slow growth, I think, for me, because I'm not willing to go take out another you know, five hundred thousand dollars in loans to get to the next step. Right. Um, but I think that growing organically is there's a little bit more. Um, I don't I don't know I don't have the right words for it, but I I think that it's just a little more my speed. It's what I enjoy doing. I like to build something slowly and see where it goes and evolve with it. You know, because I think that you have to be changing with it all the time in order to keep yourself in the game. That mindfulness of trying to stay in the game, but but. But staying focused, I, I think we, we see a lot of, especially new brewers, come in and they say, okay, sure, we're going to start off with a two barrel, we're going to start off with a with a you know, fifteen barrel, whatever. Uh, we want to be the next Sierra Nevada. We want to be the next, and like that's going to be almost impossible in in, in this day and age. Yeah. What are the benefits to to committing to saying to staying small? I think it's. Manageable. Or what's worked for you, I, mean, I guess. I, I think it, it keeps it more manageable. You're, and it keeps your hands in it a little bit more than, you know, going larger like that. You know, I mean, to put a 15-barrel system in with 30-barrel tanks, 100-barrel tanks, you know, I mean, that's that's a commitment. And, and you have to hire, you know, a lot. There's a lot more hands involved in how that beer is being made, a lot more management of that beer. And the people that do it right do it, do it right, you know. Um, and it's very difficult to do, to keep that many people doing it and keeping quality control and all that is really important. I think being small gives me the benefit of just having a little more, uh, just a little more skin in the game and being a part of it. You know, I, I'm back there brewing beer and, you know, and I come out and I talk to the people in the, in the pub that are regulars and I know them and they know me and they're always asking, Oh, what are you making? What, what's going on next? What's coming? What's in tanks? You know, what's new and exciting. So I think that's the, the, the joy of being small. I think that's a good place to leave it. Alex, thanks so much. I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me. All right. Cheers. Cheers.
Now it's time for some practical advice from an industry expert. Matthew McLaughlin focuses his practice on corporate and business transactions, including advising companies on corporate and commercial finance matters, federal, state, and local economic development incentives, and non-traditional sources of capital. This month, we talk about classic legal mistakes a small brewery can avoid and things to focus on, including trademark, regulatory licensing, and raising money. Here's Matthew in his own words. I'm Matthew McLaughlin. I'm an attorney. Uh, we work with breweries and distilleries all over the country. Most of our clients are located in the southeastern United States, uh, but we handle um, regulatory, corporate, and trademark matters for um, breweries and distilleries all over the United States. And here are some practical tips for startup um, and early stage breweries. Um, I would say right now, one of the most common um, is dealing with trademarks. You know, there's so many breweries and there's so many different beer brands um, that, you know, prudent and um, sophisticated breweries and business people understand the concept of trademarks and infringement and are very proactive about doing research to make sure that they're not infringing on someone else's registered mark. Um, everyone wants to kind of come up with the most clever pun that they can, um, but there's a lot of infringement going on. Um, breweries and their founders kind of sitting around. I mean, we see this every day, having a couple beers, throwing ideas up on a whiteboard. They name a beer, they get graphics designed around it. They design a, a can or a package or whatever, or a keg collar, and they put you know, time and money into that particular product. And then uh, four weeks after the product launch, they get a cease and desist from a larger brewery in another part of the country that registered that trademark six years ago. Um, that That's a big problem for a bunch of reasons. One, it's expensive to respond to those. Um, it's also, uh, you know, the infringement triggers damages in favor of the senior registered mark holder. And you've just wasted a lot of money going through branding and product design, all of which could have been avoided with, you know, uh, uh, with a little bit of planning and, and a little better understanding of, of what trademarks are. So trademarks, both on the registration side and on the infringement side, are, are big issues. Um, the other kind of key area we see a lot of problems um, are people that you know, enter into limited liability company agreements or shareholder agreements that don't properly address regulatory situations. And what I mean by that is at the federal and state level, um, there are certain individuals that cannot have an ownership interest in a manufacturing brewery or a brew pub. And, um, you have felony convictions, misdemeanor convictions or misdemeanors in some states, um, having an ownership interest in a restaurant while also trying to have an ownership interest in a manufacturing entity, those are generally disallowed um, at the federal and state level through a very complicated set of laws that are trying to keep bad actors out of the alcohol industry, but also are trying to ensure integrity amongst the kind of three tiers. And we've seen a number of situations where you know, we've got a brewery that's going to predominantly be a manufacturing brewery that may have a tap room, but it's a manufacturing license. 
and they have a buddy that owns a restaurant that has a retail beer permit and they take money from that person and we have to go back in and kind of unwind that which can be costly and expensive and so having an understanding on the front end of what regulatory rules apply to the alcohol industry is key and then the second part of that is making sure that your corporate documents the documents that govern how the, the entity is going to operate can address situations um, later on down the road once the brewery is up and operational. That is, so raising money and bringing on investors um, goes hand in hand with some of the regulatory issues that I just mentioned. The other part of raising money is that a lot of, um, a lot of people don't have finance backgrounds. They've never gone through a fundraising process and it can be daunting. Um, you have to, if you're, if you're taking money from a third party and that person is going to have an ownership interest in your brewery, that, that transaction or that relationship needs to be analyzed for federal and state securities compliance. Um, that's the legal side of things. The practical side of things are um, what does that equity look like? What do the economics look like? How much is the brewery going to be valued? You know, if it's a startup, if it's a brew pub, you know, what's the business model? If I'm going to take $200,000 from somebody, how much am I going to give up? What is reasonable? Um, do I need to give up control? No. Um, is this person going to want to have say in major decisions? Probably so. And then the other part of that is the debt financing piece. So we, we tell clients that if you can finance part of the project with debt, um, that is a cheaper or lower cost form of capital than equity is. If you look at the capital over the, 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 the lifespan of the brewery, debt is cheaper than equity because with equity, you're giving up ownership and you're, you're, you're giving up a little bit of control and you're, and you're giving up you know, profit and upside and, and things of that nature. The flip side of it is, is that debt creates you know, a monthly payment that you've got to account for in your cash flow. Um, model. And so um, we spent a bunch of time helping clients kind of navigate what's the most appropriate capital stack, what's the most appropriate blend of equity versus debt, where do I need to go get it? And once I've got somebody that's interested in either lending me money or investing in me, what do the documents look like? How do we close that transaction? So um, we spent a, a whole bunch of time with breweries kind of helping them navigate the financial modeling side and then subsequent closing of you know, bringing on an investor or closing closing a loan uh, on their back. Again, my name is Matthew McLaughlin. I'm an alcohol regulatory attorney um, with uh, 17 years of experience, and we can be reached. Um, the phone number is 601-487-4550, um, or my email address is m-a-t-t-h-e-w at McLaughlin, M-C-L-A-U-G-H-L-I-N-P, c.com um, or you can check out our website mclaughlinpc.com and follow us on all of our social media outlets thanks again to this episode's sponsor blickman engineering pro brewing pump cart Visit BlickmanPro.com for more information. 
Obviously, it's important to work with the right amount of specific ingredients when creating a beer recipe, but what if it's something you haven't used before or only read about in books? Not too long ago, I sat down with Jeff Tyler of Spice Trade Brewing to talk about his brewery's approach to brewing with special ingredients, how they run trials, and to ask advice on how brewers just starting out should approach making beers with a kick. When you're getting ready to jump up to a 15 barrel, because you're on a what, 7 now? Yeah. So... What have you started thinking about as you get ready to make that that jump? Yeah, so scaling up beer is an interesting thing, and um, it, it's the same deal with home brewing, right? Like you start at a, whatever a five gallon or ten gallon batch size, and then you want to scale that recipe up. Our pilot system is a is basically a ten gallon Ruby Street system. Okay. So every time we scale our system, our, our beers even up from a ten gallon to a seven barrel, there's a lot of considerations, and then it's the same thing when we go from a um, seven barrel to fifteen. Um, you know, scaling the thing with scaling recipes is not not really linear, um, but you can get a good shot at it the first time if you scale it linearly. I've found that you need to generally add a little bit more of um, sort of adjuncts depending on what your ingredients are to sort of hit the same flavor profile. But that being said, we've been we've been doing it for a while um, because we've uh, we've been packaging beer on a 15 barrel system for the last two two and a half years now. Um, so we have a lot of experience at this point at brewing on a 15 barrel system. So it makes it pretty easy to scale up recipes. You can say, hey, let's maybe add 10% more on this one ingredient that we're going to add um, in the fermenter. And we should be pretty close. And then we can fine tune it from there once we taste it. What's your approach when you're making beers? Like when you're, when you're creating a new recipe? Do you, is there a guiding light? Is there a guiding principle that you have for the brewery? Yeah, so, you know, I always tell people Spice Trade brews beer inspired by culinary ingredients and cultural traditions from around the world. You know, our goal really is to highlight cultures through their flavors. I think there's a lot to be said uh, for bringing people together, and food is a great way to do that. Beer is a great way to do that. But there's a lot of of great flavors around there in the world, and we want to showcase that stuff through our beer. So usually our beers are, I kind of think about... um, I kind of think about when I'm developing a new recipe as having a seed, like where does your seed come from? And that can be, for me personally, I get a lot of inspiration and kind of find those seed ingredients or or seed concepts through either food, um, drinks, Mm -hmm. terroir is a big one too. That's kind of, you know, the sour beer world, which we dabble in a little bit. Um, And then memories is a cool one too. I think there's a lot of power for... um, for beer that are based off of uh, sort of like flavor memories or or some experiential memory that you have because there's a lot of power to that and um, I think people can connect with stories a lot more than they can some esoteric ingredients so we kind of start there we start with the seed and um, you know one beer we have which we have with us this weekend at Big Beers is our uh, Szechuan Saison okay. so it's uh, French style Saison pretty effervescent brewed with Szechuan peppercorn Chinese five spice and orange peel and the seed for that ingredient was really Szechuan peppercorns it's a super cool ingredient that's used in Szechuan cooking all the time. Um, there's a lot of misconceptions around what it is and what flavors it has. Uh, and that that one ingredient was sort of the seed for that beer. And then we built the rest of the flavor profile that we wanted, sort of working backwards around that seed. Uh, what other adjuncts can we add? And then how can we use all the traditional beer ingredients to develop that full flavor profile? That's a really interesting thing of starting with one and then working back. Because... I- well, before we get to that, I'm, I'm sort of curious as to how you settled on the concept of culinary beers, like that that's what you wanted your brewery to be. Yeah, um, a couple of reasons. One, personally, I'm a really passionate home cook. I love cooking. I love flavors. Um, I grew up in a family obsessed with food, so so just 
culinary things are, are, are um, kind of deep within me. So I love experimenting with flavors. Uh, but also when we rebranded the brewery from Yak and Yeti, we really sat down and we said, okay, like how can we, how can we kind of rebrand this brewery? How can we freshen it up, but also stay true to our roots and stay true to what makes us special? And I think the thing that made us special was you walk into an Indian restaurant and you're like, these guys make beer? Like what? And people go to an Indian restaurant because they want exotic flavors. They want things that... Um, are a little outside the norm, um, maybe a little bit extreme compared to your average food, uh, and they want a cultural experience too. You know, everyone who works at the Yakinetti restaurant is from Nepal, um, and we really wanted to keep our brewery true to um, both those exotic flavors and also the the cultural aspect of our of our our roots in the Yakinetti restaurant. So then, all right, going back to where we were with with peppercorn, I'm 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 curious because a lot of the time when I taste a beer and somebody says, oh, it's a peppercorn beer mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, and it's it's some sort of assertive flavor, mm-hmm. that's pretty much all that dominates and that right. and everything else is lost. So I, I found it very happily curious um, that you still want to bring the beer flavors in. Yeah. H- how important is that? Oh, it's everything, man. It's, uh, you know, I, I think at Spice Trade, we take a lot of pride in making very well-balanced beers because... Uh, you know, unfortunately, I think uh, there's a lot of not well-balanced beers out there. I think the consumer likes to get punched in the face with flavor. I think it's a, an American thing where you want extreme, you want to know what you're drinking, uh, or you want to know what flavors uh, you're experiencing. And you see that a lot with the peach milkshake IPA trends going on right now. Lots of flavor, full flavor, maybe not as drinkable. So we really try to strike a very delicate balance between this is still a beer, you can still drink it. A lot of times we recommend certain food pairings too, so it's 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 drinkable enough to have with a meal it's not going to fill you up on its own but the flavors work um and so when when we think about a beer you know if if we're kind of going to keep going with the szechuan saison you know we start with those szechuan peppercorns and usually it's some some real interesting ingredient uh you know people think szechuan peppercorns are spicy uh, but they're actually not they're used in szechuan cooking to balance the spice they actually numb your taste buds there's this concept of the la and the ma in szechuan cooking and la is the spice and ma is the numbing and it's a very core part of Szechuan cooking. And so we do a lot of pairings with that beer at the restaurant where we pair it with spicy food because of the numbing properties. And it's 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 subtle. It's not like you're not going to drink it and be like, I, I would, why did you're I do this? You're not coming back from the dentist. Uh, yeah, kind no, of no, no, no. It's, yeah. it's subtle. It's, a, it's like a tingling sensation, but it's cool and you know it's there. Um, so, yeah, so we start with that. And I, I usually try to think about what other culinary ingredients can we add to that. Chinese five spice is a huge thing in, in Szechuan cooking. Also, it has a lot of um, sort of like toasted, um, fennel flavors. There is fennel and five spice. I think about like 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 Italian Christmas cookies, sort of as a flavor profile, and then the orange peel. Um, and you know, usually I'll marry a, a base beer to that ingredient to start. Um, you know, Szechuan peppercorns are actually kind of citrusy and woody. Um, they're not really spicy like black pepper is at all either. Um, so, uh, you know, a French style Saison works really well for that because you have a little bit of that pepper flavor from the yeast to kind of balance out and match with the citrus flavor. But depending on your yeast that you use, you can also get citrus esters from it as well. So it's a really good base beer to sort of marry some flavors that you're going to get from the, from the beer in with that ingredient. And then you can layer everything, uh, else in it as you go. And then, you know, refine, rebrew, refine, rebrew, kind of repeat that process to, to, um, to tune it in. Um, one thing that we do at Spice Trade is all of our spices, um, 
we make our own spice blends for everything that we do. So we don't go and buy a Chinese five spice blend and throw it in. We get all the ingredients in, in Chinese five spice. We grind it the day that we put it in the beer. Uh, and that allows two things. One, super fresh and consistency is, is really important there too. If you, I mean, if you've ever gone into your spice cabinet at home and yeah. pulled something that's basically, you know, powdered cardboard from three years ago that has no flavor, um, that's why we grind it uh, fresh. And also you can tune the balance of the spice blend. So when we first did the Chinese five spice, we, we used it and we're like, man, this is like too anise, too licorice. And so you can kind of dial those things down um, and dial the other things up in that spice blend to get exactly the flavor profile you want. When you start to figure out the profiles and you start to use an ingredient for the first time, what sort of trials do you run on it? You know, because I, I, I think, you know, in some cases, you know, you're like, oh, let's, let's see what five pounds does. And yeah. maybe you have to dump it. Maybe you're not. Maybe not. You know, but like, are you running small test batches beforehand? I mean, you mentioned your 10-gallon uh, pilot, but like, are, are you doing even smaller than that? Are you doing tinctures? Are you trying to do, you know, steepings or? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And it's, a, it, it's, it's, it's so difficult because every single ingredient acts so differently. Yeah. And it depends, like you said, on where you put it in the brewing process. We're working on a couple cool projects right now um, with a lot of different herbal ingredients, teas, um, flowers, and things. And those can add a lot of kind of harsh bitterness. And we've done a lot of steeping with those types of ingredients. So certain ingredients you can steep. Um, a lot of times we'll do a test batch with it. Um, and we've done enough where we kind of have like a couple categories. Like if it's a spice in this category, we'll put about this much in. And usually we start to ref, like we've done enough pilot batches where maybe this was too much, maybe that wasn't enough. And just kind of keep, keeping really good notes, right? Notes are super important. And you can go back and reference and say, ah, oh, this beer had that ingredient and it was this amount at that time. And it was a little too much. And maybe this, that beer had more assertive flavors. Maybe it was a, an imperial stout. And now we're putting it in a, in a, you know, table beer, a Belgian table beer. So we got to dial that back by like 40% or something. Um, a lot of it is test batches. Um, there's some tinctures that we do uh, with certain ingredients uh, and we're starting to explore that a little bit more, but a lot of it is just um, on our 10 gallon system and then looking back at other batches that we've made and iterating on, on past experience. What's a piece of advice that you have for home brewers, smaller brewers uh, when it comes to using an unfamiliar ingredient for the first time? Taste it. Um, I feel like, you know, brewing is cooking. If you ever hang out with a good chef, they're tasting their stuff all the time. You know, they're going to put it in. They're going to, they're going to taste as they're cooking. They're going to taste their ingredients just to figure out, okay, do I need more? Is this an ingredient that it's going to continue to extract as I let it go? Or has it maxed out? A big thing that we do at Spice Trade when we're trying to figure out how long and uh, how long to put an ingredient in is every time we put an ingredient you know, obviously we're tasting the beer before we're tasting the beer daily as it goes, but either if it's in the fermenter or if it's in the boil, we're always pulling that ingredient out when the batch is done and tasting the ingredient itself. If you can taste flavor in the ingredient when yeah. you're done, you did not fully extract all the flavor in that ingredient. Um, and that can be, a, that can add a lot of insight to whether you need to let it go longer or you need to figure out a different procedure to get your full extraction uh, of your ingredient. On the small scale, it doesn't matter as much. You can kind of overshoot it and then taste it. And when it's ready, you can transfer it and, you know, it kind of 
kind of be done with it. But I'm a big advocate of tasting, 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 taste the ingredients that are going in and, and taste your, your beer as it goes and taste the ingredients when it comes out, which I think is a thing that not a lot of uh, people do. Is there an ingredient that you're excited to work with? Like something that you haven't yet, but that you've been tasting and trying to figure out a place for? Yeah, we, um, we're working on a project now and I can't tell you all the details of okay. it, but, um, so we did a, we did a collaboration, um, with Alex Liberati at uh, Liberati Brewery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love the stuff he's doing with NO beers, um, beer wine hybrids, really innovative, interesting work. And uh, we did a collaboration with him where we made a vermouth beer. We were talking about this a little bit before. Yeah. Um, but so vermouth is a, is a fortified and aromatized wine that comes from certain parts of Italy. Torino, Italy is one of the main uh, regions that it came from. Um, and so it was kind of the perfect collaboration, right? Cause we do spices, they do wine, like spiced wine, boom. Like yeah. it, it was just, it was perfect. And it's, it's really, it's bitter and it's sweet and you can have it as a digestif after, after a meal and it works really well in cocktails. Um, there's a lot of super cool herbs, uh, and spices and woods and barks and roots and seeds that go into, um, vermouth and a couple different, a couple other beverages also that we're working on now. And that's, that's a frontier that I'm really excited about because there's a lot of history and tradition there in Italy. Um, and like just decades and generations of families refining very specific blends of these herbs, like 40 different herbs that are proprietary and come with this really rounded, bitter profile. Yeah. And, um, that's an area that I'm really excited to, to dive into because it's, it's really complicated and you can make some super cool flavors with it. And I think the American beer drinker, they like bitter, right? IPAs, people love bitter. And I yeah. think this is a new frontier of, of bitter with, uh, more flavors, less kind of, of the fruit and citrus pine flavors that you get from hops and mm-hmm. more, uh, complex, like we said, wood bark seeds sort of flavors that, that I'm really excited to start messing around with that a little more. Where do you think spicing beers goes like what, what like what what does the future hold or what do you hope it holds for the beers that you want to make and the beers that you want to you know see other people make and get into the glass in front of consumers yeah I th- you know i don't know i mean spices have such an ancient history um and they really can showcase a sense of place very uh you know very well um, different spices are indigenous to different regions and they can showcase a, a, a place as good as any ingredient. And I think the variety of spices is, is, is mind boggling. Um, you know, I think people gravitate towards hops and hoppy beers right now because, um, when you look at the four main ingredients in beers, hops are one of the few that's still being cultivated and new varieties are coming out and people love messing around with new flavors and seeing what comes out. But I hope more people start to use spices uh, in beers but you can use it in a in a subtle way you know um, when you cook you can cook with bay leaf and it's not like you're you don't taste just the bay leaf it's a very subtle component of a complex flavor profile so i think spices can be used um, as brewers start to really refine flavor profiles sort of like chefs refine flavor profiles i think spices can be used in a very delicate way to add nuance to beer and i hope that um 
I hope that that is a, is a trend that, that people start grabbing onto because it really can make flavors pop in, in very unique ways. And you don't have to hit something in the head with a sledgehammer. You can be delicate about it. And I think spices are a cool avenue to be delicate about balancing flavors. I dig it. Yeah. Jeff Tyler, Spice Trade Brewing. Thanks for sitting down on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. This This is fun. As we close out this episode of the BYO Nano Brewing Podcast, our thanks to the episode sponsor, Blickman Engineering Pro Brewing Pump Cart. Keep your brew day hopping with the Blickman Engineering Pro Brewing Pump Cart. Looking for an affordable, reliable, and easy-to-use solution for transferring your beer or cleaning your tanks? The Pro Brewing Pump Cart is designed with a front wheel that allows you to hop over hoses easily by simply tipping it forward. Perfect for brewery environments to transfer your beer and CIP your tanks. Starting at $17.99, order yours today. Visit BlickmanPro.com for more information. Again, BlickmanPro.com. And head over to BYO.com and subscribe to the newsletter, the magazine, and to catch up with great homebrewing content. We'll be releasing new episodes on the 15th of each month, so subscribe now and never miss a show when it's released. And also, you can do us a favor by leaving your feedback on your podcast platform of choice or by emailing nano at byo.com or check in on all of the BYO social media channels. Save the date on your calendar for this year's NanoCon taking place in San Diego from November 6th to 7th. Full program details on the two days of brewing and business seminars targeted for nano breweries already up and running or in planning will be released on nanocon.beer in March. I'm John Hall, and you can still find me weekly behind the microphone on the Drink Beer, Think Beer podcast, as well as Steal This Beer, and I hope you'll tune into those as well. Thanks to Scott McCampbell for supplying the music on this show. And the Nano Brewing segment is really fueling craft beer these days. And in the months to come, I'm excited to dive into all of the aspects, cultural, creative, and business, and everything that the nano space has to offer. We hope you'll continue to tune in and let us know what you want to hear by, again, emailing us at nano at byo.com. Make sure you subscribe now to the podcast. Never miss an upcoming episode. And all the best for a small but successful brew day. Cheers. Cheers.